The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information on our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Good morning, church. Um, I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here this morning. This is going to be a bit of a unique one. Um, Craig is our executive pastor. If you don't know him, he's awesome. Um, and he's done such an incredible job uh, preparing and studying uh, for this morning to preach this text. And uh, as he studied and he, he, he's just dug in, and personally, I always really enjoy when, uh, when Craig preaches. I, I love it. I've looked forward to it. Uh, but as you may have noticed, I am not Craig. Um, <laughs> surprise. Uh, I am not Craig, and um, unfortunately, Craig is dealing with a nasty illness that hit him this morning. Um, real nasty. I've known him for a long time. I've known Craig for, I think, 15 years, and he's a tough dude. I've seen him fight through things, um, so this is, this is a bit this is unique. Uh, we need to be in prayer for him um, to get through this sickness. I know it is killing him not to be here. Um, and uh, again, um, I'm, I'm not Craig. So this might be a unique morning. It might be, um, I, I am excited though to look through this text, to dig in this text. I'm very excited about that. But this morning is going to be a little more unscripted? I'm not really scripted, but, but you know what I mean, um, than I normally am. I ask for your grace as we, as we dig into this uh, this morning, and um, the Bible says be ready in season out. Amen? Here we go. Here we go. Um, as you approach this text with me, I, I, I pray, I pray that along with me that our eyes and ears just be open to what God has for us this morning. And, um, you know, I could be a lot shorter than normal. <laughs> You're not supposed to cheer for that. But I also could be a lot longer. You have no idea what's going to happen. Um, so we'll see. This will be fun. Um, but let me get us caught up a little bit. Over the past few weeks, so we have been in Titus and have really enjoyed our time together in, in Titus, looking through this letter. Um, I believe it's been timely. Uh, we're currently right in the middle of the book, basically. And what we've walked through is at the beginning, we looked at for, uh, chapter 1, and chapter 1 deals with leadership. And what we saw right off the bat is that leadership matters, Leadership matters greatly, deeply. And not only that, but leadership, not only does it matter vaguely, but leadership in the church matters greatly. Um, and, and Paul has a lot to say about it. We saw in chapter 1, Paul says, this is what leadership in the church should look like. More than that, he says, this is what leaders in the church uh, should look like. And we got to walk through that. But the, from there, as we got to chapter 2, we saw this kind of shift, and um, where Paul is not only addressing leaders of the church, but he shifts to now address the church as a whole. And he, he lays out this beautiful example that we looked at in the first part of chapter 2, where older men are to lead 
and pour into younger men. Older women are to lead and pour into younger women. There's this cross-generational discipleship that is just beautiful and powerful. We, We talked about the fact that the church is wonderfully and beautifully diverse. And that we should fight for this because this is the, the picture that is painted for the church. And this is what Paul paints for us as we get to our text. And so let me give you a heads up on where I think we are going to be going this morning. So we are going to be looking at verses 9, and we are going to get not that far to verse 10. All right, so 9 and 10. And um, here's what I'd like for us to do. First, I want to start off with a bit of a definition of our terms. We're going to look and we're going to see what could be a, um, a landmine for us as we look in that. And so before we dig into the text, I want to look at that. The second thing I want to do is to look at Paul's negative commands. What I mean is the don't do this. We're going to look at those. Then I want to look at the positive commands, the do this. And finally, we're going to end with one of the most powerful summary statements of the why. So that's where we're headed uh, this, this morning with this. Um, let me do this before we get going and jump in. I'd love for us to just start with prayer. So would you join with me as we have our Bibles in hands, and would you join with me? Lord, we come to you this morning, and we ask that you speak. We know, Lord, that it is not the power of any speaker, but it is what is being spoken, and we come together around your word. And we know that as we do, that it will not return void. Lord, I pray that you would lead and direct our steps this morning through this incredible uh, section of your word. Would you give us open eyes to see? Would you give us open ears to hear? Would you give us the courage and the ability to apply what what your word sets out before us in order that we may make the gospel beautiful as we're going to see this morning? So Lord, thank you for that. And uh, Lord, would you help me this morning? Would you give me clarity of mind? Would you speak in and through? Lord, we give you glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's start with the beginning. And and like I said, I want to start with the landmine. What I mean by a landmine, um, a landmine in a text, whenever I say that, I'm talking about something that has the potential to derail from the main point. It's, It's... it's something that, if we aren't careful, will lead us away from the main point of the text. And we have a, a pretty powerful landmine in our, in our text in, this morning. And when this happens, we can approach them in, in a couple different ways. One, we can um, pretend they aren't there. Just move on, right? Um, two, we can punt and just say, hey, next time we get to a text like this, we'll deal with it which is basically a different version of pretending it's not there. Um, Or three, you can just call it out so that it does not continue to derail. And that's kind of the approach I want to take uh, with us this morning um, so that we are able to see the main text. So the landmine isn't difficult to find. Depending on your translation, it's the first or second word, I believe. 
Um, it is the word bondservant, if you have the NIV, servant, bond slaves, or slaves, um, depending on how your translation handles this word. This is a massive landmine for us, and let me just call this out the why, because we are Americans, and um, we cannot help but read this with North American eyes. And for a lot of us, we're not even able to read the rest of this until we say, what on earth is going on here? What is Paul doing with this? What is he saying? Um, so first, what we are reading right now is a translation from the original language, which was Greek. And for anyone who has, maybe if you know Spanish and you're trying to translate, if you know any other language, you know that the, the process of translating a language to another is rarely one-to-one. Um, it's just, it's just not. It can be, it can be difficult. It can be, it can be hard. We saw this in, in fact, last week when we looked at the word shalom in Hebrew. Beautiful word that has so many complexities, and yet in the English, it's translated in like 13 different ways. Why is that? Because there's no one to one, right? Well, we're approaching a word that is a bit like that um, this morning. And what I'd like to do, if you have an ESV Bible in front of you, the ESV has done something that's really helpful. In the preface of any and every ESV Bible, the translators of the ESV believe that this is of such importance, that this is such a potential landmine, that they have addressed it specifically. And I'd love to just read some of what the ESV preface says. It says, um, uh, let me pick up right here. This term actually covers a wide range of relationships, either slave, bondservant, or servant, depending on the context. Further, the word slave currently carries associations with the often brutal and dehumanitizing institution of slavery in the 19th century America. And for this reason, the words obed in, um, in Hebrew and doulos, which is our word here in Greek, have been undertaken with particular attention to their meaning in this specific context. Skip down. In the New Testament times, this is our, our word here, a doulos is often best or described as a bondservant, that is someone bound to serve his master for a specific period of time, often usually lengthy period of time, but also someone who might nevertheless own property, achieve social achievement, and even be released or um, purchase his freedom. And so the ESV usage seeks to express the nuance of this meaning in the context. So what they do is where the absolute ownership of a master is in view, they use the term slave. But where a more limited form of servitude is in view, the ESV chooses to use this term as bond servant. It's really helpful. It's really helpful. And, and, and just to see, and the fact that this is of the importance level to earn itself a place in the preface of any and every ESV Bible should tell us something together. Um, 
they have such a great concern with this. And so like it said, it chooses to, to identify this as bond servant. And one of the most um, unfortunate things I think about this word and about church history is as we think back on the past, it's not, it's not always pretty, and it's not always um, clean. And the more you study any history or person, if you study them long enough, you're going to start to see the flaws and the sin that comes to the surface because we're sinful people. And um, unfortunately, as you think about this text throughout the context of history, this has been one of these texts that has been weaponized. Um, this and other texts like this have been used as a weapon in um, 19th century American slavery institution. Weaponized. Um, slavery is a terrible part of our history in the United States. It's a tragedy, something that should never have happened, a stain on our nation in every way. But it's also a stain on the church. And I think we need to be honest with this. Um, slavery was and is wrong. It goes against the Word of God as well as the nature of God and the sanctity of human life. And we as the church have a role, we have a responsibility to stand against that kind of injustice. But unfortunately, as you look at church history, not only did we fail to do that in so many areas, but we actually use the Word of God to defend it. Um, this text would have been used to pro be proclaimed to slaves, and the implication here was, as a slave, you need to just be docile, submissive in every way, and if you aren't, you're going against your God, not just your master. Um, okay, I didn't realize this, and I want to share this. Um, there is currently on display at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., um, a Bible from the, the 1800s referred to as the Slave Bible. This should make us all very angry, what I'm about to share. Um, here on display, <clears throat> honestly, I wouldn't even call this a Bible anymore, but it has gone through some massive edits. And... Um, Anthony Schmidt is an associate curator of the museum, says that about 90% of the Old Testament is missing, about 50% of the New Testament is missing. He says, to put it another way, there are 1,189 chapters in a standard Protestant Bible. This Bible only contains 232. Any verses that could have been used to incite rebellion have been removed. And also, the direct opposite was done. Any verse that could be used to reinforce submission was not only kept, but highlighted. This should infuriate us. This is a weaponizing of God's Word. Complete misuse and completely evil. Um, I wanted to walk down this path because it's important, because we can easily... Side note, follow the same path. And what I mean by that is, is if we come to this 
and we're coming to this so that it can support our own agendas or what we want it to say. We want it to defend what we want it to defend. We want it to say what we think it should say in order to put out some agenda. If we come to our Bible like that, we have missed it. And I wonder if in a couple hundred years we're going to look back on what we've done to the Word of God with the same disdain as I look back at this slave Bible in the Washington, D.C. Museum. We come to this not so that it can tell us that we're right in what we believe. We don't come to this so that we can shape it (laughs) to to communicate what we want it to communicate. We come to this to be shaped by this, that this holds all the authority, and it's not a proof text for us. The word, this word here in our text, though, is, is landmine because of our history, and I want to encourage you to try the best that we can to separate these ideas of bondservant and 19th century American um, slavery. It's not referring to that, and, and what it is referring to is something quite different, quite different. Um, now, we don't have a direct comparison. That's the challenge of this. Um, I've tried to kind of think through what comparisons might be like. Many have seen this as kind of a boss-employee relationship. And there's a lot there that I think is spot on. I think it's fair. It's a little incomplete, but it's fair. It's the, kind of the closest we can, we can get. Um, we were in a preaching meeting this week. <laughs> this shows you how fun our preaching meetings are. And we got on the topic. We were thinking, like, what could be a good comparison, a bondservant? And um, we couldn't help but think of Alfred. And I'm talking to Alfred from Batman. All right? This is what we do in preaching meetings. We couldn't help but think of Alfred because Alfred was family. He knew all the secrets of Bruce, and um, he wasn't mistreated. He wasn't degraded. He, he, was a, he was loved, but he was an employee of the Wayne family. This relationship is probably the closest thing we have to really thinking through bondservant in our modern context. Um, Honestly, though, church, when we come to this text, and this is going to set the stage for where we're going, this is a text about authority. It is a text about authority. It is a text about how we respond to authority. What do we do with authority? And we all have authority around us. Bosses, you might say, well, I am the boss. There's someone above you. Government, uh, you drove here on streets. You drove here under authority. You stop at a stop sign. I hope you do. It's authority. We're all under authority in um, in our church, there's authority. We just walk through what that looks like. In our homes, in our schools, in our offices, wherever we are, we are people who understand authority because we are in it in, in some way. And what Paul says here is be submissive, well-pleasing, don't argue, don't steal, show good faith. And we'll get to the end here in a bit. 
But submission to authority, church, I know is not the most popular message that I could be delivering um, in our current context. And honestly, it's for good reason. Um, many times authority has been abused. Let me, let me think about it like this. How many have worked for a great boss? <laughs> Number's far less than I thought it was going to be. Ouch. Um, a boss that you think, okay, that's, that's a good, they're good at what they do. I want to, I flourish under them. They, I respect them, I trust them, they create an environment that is wonderful to work in. If you've had a good boss, you know what that's like. Submission is awesome in that context. Submission is incredible in that context. It is easy to submit to a good boss. Let me ask the inverse. How many have had a terrible boss? There are more people raising their hands on that one than a good one. Someone who you don't really trust, you don't think that they have your best interests at heart. Someone who just kind of creates bleh and terrible working environments and you... Submission in that context, church, is a lot more difficult. Submission in that context is, is a lot more difficult. Um, I want to share an example because when we think of authority, it gets kind of hard. When, when does it stop? When do we need to draw the line and say, no, uh, I'm not obeying that authority anymore? When does submission stop? Um, we had a great example of someone in our, in our church um, who entered into a really difficult situation that is exactly like what I'm talking about. Um, he works in marketing, and as someone in marketing, your job is dependent on how good you make the people you market for, right? When they look good, you did a good job. When they look bad, you didn't. You want to promote them, make them look good. You want them to win because their wins are your wins as someone in marketing. What happens, though, when this person had a new client come on his desk that he could not, in good conscience, promote? that he could not in good conscience make look good, that he could not in good conscience make them win. What happens there? All of a sudden there's a conflict in what the boss is telling you to do and your conscience as a follower of Jesus. All of a sudden it becomes very difficult. And I want to give this principle because I think, it's, I think it's helpful. We submit to authority until it causes us to sin against our ultimate authority. We submit to authority until that point when it causes us to sin against our ultimate authority. Authority kind of falls out. That makes sense. And in a situation like the example I just gave you, that's hard because it's your job on the line. 
put your income on the line. You're going to have to go home and say, wife, I don't know if I did the right thing here. It becomes very difficult. But this is what submission to authority looks like in the real world. See, sometimes when everything is good and your boss is amazing, submission is wonderful. It's just easy, right? But when it's not, it becomes difficult. It becomes difficult. And this is the world we live in. And here's what I mean. Submission does not mean abuse. It does not mean that we are perpetual yes men and women. In fact, it can often mean, more often, please hear me, it can mean that we now know how to disagree well. The idea of authority and submission, godly authority submission, is all throughout Scripture. It's a part of the plan of God, and it's a part of the plan of God for us to flourish. It matters. And because it matters, it matters how we respond. And so I want to look at this because Paul gives us some commands. He starts with negative ones and then moves to positive ones. I want to look at the, the negative one first. He, he says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything there to be well-pleasing, and here's the negative, not argumentative. Not argumentative. Um, I want to give another example because this, is, uh, this one's a little fresh. Um, <laughs> my wife was at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> yes, the Christian chicken the other day. And um, boys were playing, and, and they have a great playground. And so, um, boys were playing, and, and near to my wife was a, was a table, uh, a group of, of several employees who were around the table having a great time, having a pretty loud conversation, enjoying every minute of this conversation. And the whole conversation was built around blasting their boss, like tearing this person apart. How dare he? And there was like this joy and camaraderie in doing this and just over the Christian chicken, just having a good old time about, about really ridiculous stuff about like whether or not he told them to put the donuts out with the box open or closed. Minutes and minutes of that. All right. This example, I give this because I wanted you to get a good example of what it could potentially mean to be argumentative. It doesn't mean that when your boss gives you something um, and you are under their authority that you just stand up and argue with them face to face. It could mean that. But it, most often what this looks like, argumentative looks like, is when you leave, you then go spread. And you just spread this hostile, argumentative culture. Paul here is calling us to be submissive to authority. And that is not what submission to authority looks like. It could really frustrate you that he made you open the donut box. But argumentative is when we let our tongue lead and destroy the culture that we work with. And as followers of Jesus, we are not to lead out in that. We are not to lead out in that kind of destructive conversation. See, this example, the do not be argumentative, deals with our tongue. 
And our tongue is the most difficult thing for us to get into control. It deals with our tongue. The second uh, negative command, though, doesn't deal with our tongue. It's this strange word, pilfering. Anyone use that this morning? <laughs> Some maybe. I know I don't use this word typically in my normal vernacular, but um, pilfering is stealing. It's theft. And it's a specific kind of theft. It's not walking into a bank and saying, give me all your money now. That's not pilfering. Pilfering is a slow drip. One for you and one for me. It's a slow and ongoing theft. Paul says, don't pilfer. Whereas the first one, arguing, deals with the tongue. Now this deals with the hands and actions. It deals with our resources. The most common example I can think of this is time theft. This one's a pretty easy apples-to-apples comparison. Um, where we just, it's not that we're stealing money. You, we are. But we're stealing time and we're stealing it little by little, day by day. That is pilfering. And when Paul says, I want you to be submissive to authority, what it means is it, we control our tongue, we're not argumentative, and we control our hands, and we're not thieves even if it's just little by little. Here's the deal. If you were to do the bank robbery approach, you'd be fired. You wouldn't have to worry about that. But the pilfering approach can do that for years and years and years. And Paul says this is not what followers of Jesus are to look like. This is not what followers of Jesus are to look like as we submit to authority. Now, let's look at the positives the positives from this, and these, this is just powerful. It says, don't be argumentative or uh, pilfer instead, but showing all good faith. But to show the faith. I love this because it, we've talked a lot about how orthodoxy, what we believe, will lead to orthopraxy. So right belief will lead us to right action. When we believe that right doctrine, what we believe, that when the gospel settles into us, it will have an impact on the way we live. Well, here Paul kind of comes at it from the back door, and he says that your orthopraxy is going to proclaim your orthodoxy. That the right things you do will proclaim the fact that you have the right belief, that the right things you do will, in Paul's words, show the faith. Will, and here's the reason I love this. It's because it gives us the why behind this. It's, we are not good employees so that we make ourselves look good, we climb any corporate ladders, that we set ourselves above everyone else, it's not a selfish thing. What Paul says here is the reason why we submit to authority in a godly way is to showcase the gospel. It's to show the faith, proclaim it. This is our motivation. And what I love about this is it gets us to verse, the second half of verse 10, which is this all-encompassing purpose statement that is 
just incredible. Listen to this, not pilfering, showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, so that in everything whether it be in your work, your, your office, your home, your school, your community, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This word adorn means to make it beautiful, to decorate it in a way that makes it Beautiful. Paul says, do all of this so that in everything that you will make the doctrine of God, the gospel, what you believe, so that you will make it beautiful, appealing to the world around you, to the office around you, to the boss who maybe isn't a, what you would classify as a good boss, but that in the way you interact, you would adorn, make beautiful the things that you believe, the gospel that you hold to. How can we make the gospel more beautiful is the question. I think we've all seen it the other way around. I, we, when we first were, were planting this church, we did a uh, uh, a study on our community around us, and we got the top three reasons that um, people don't go to church. We are significantly below national average for church attendance in our community, and we thought, well, that's weird. Why? And we got three top reasons. The first one was um, money, distrust for money. The second one was a uh, just a general distrust of religious leaders, and the third one was because Christians are hypocrites. The reason I bring this up is because what we saw is that the world was saying the way they're acting is not making the gospel beautiful, it's making it stink. So therefore, I don't want to go. It's the exact opposite of what Paul says here, that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In other places, it says that our light will shine and be drawn, that they will see our good deeds and be drawn. All throughout Scripture, this is the plan, that they would see the people of God and that the people of God would make the gospel of God beautiful. But as we looked at our community, that wasn't what was happening. What was happening is that our orthopraxy, I wouldn't say orthopraxy, our praxy, was not beautifying the gospel, but it was smudging it. It was marking it. It was not making it more beautiful. It was, it was a hindrance, an obstacle. An obstacle of coming to church was that the people of God were not making the gospel beautiful in their life. Now, some of this I know is just excuses. All right, I, I get it. Some people hear that Christians are hypocrites, so they say, hypocrites. I, I get that. But there are some very real instances where, unfortunately, the people of God in the workplace are not making the gospel more beautiful. 
that we are making ourselves an obstacle. And, and as we get through this first section of chapter 2, my question to us, and I think this last part of verse 10 is just such a beautiful summary statement. My question to us is how are we doing this? How are we making the gospel more beautiful? How are we adorning it? We talked last week about shalom. Craig was, was laughing with me because he said you could really have preached last week's message this week because adorning the doctrine of God our Savior is all about shalom, bringing shalom into the community you're in. He said you could have just preached it all over again. I didn't know I was going to get the chance to do what he was making fun of me about. Um, but he's, tr- he's right. Adorning the gospel is all about shalom. So the question becomes for us, how do we do this? How do you practically live this out in your office? In a culture that may be argumentative and pilfering is the norm, how do you showcase the the beauty of the gospel? How do you adorn it? How do you adorn it in your school? How do you adorn it in your home? How do you, church, adorn it here in the church? How do we make the gospel beautiful through the way we submit to the authority God has placed in our lives? That is a question that I want to just chew on you all week. That wherever the Lord places you, that you can't get this nagging question out of your mind is, how can I adorn? How can I adorn here? When your boss is less than good, how can I adorn here? When your boss is great, how can I adorn here? That's the question I want us to leave here. And, and honestly, as we close this up, I think this starts with two things, our tongue and our hands. I think the way we adorn the gospel is one, through our tongue, and two, through our hands. What I mean by this is um, I told her I was going to use her as an example this morning, but if any of you know my mother-in-law, Judy, um, I have seen her in many different jobs under many different bosses. I have seen her in some tough working environments too, let me tell you. I have seen her all over. And through the years, even in the, the honesty around a dinner table with her, I have never once heard her talk negatively about any of her authority. Not once. Not once. And as I was thinking about how to adorn the gospel in good and not so good situations, I could not help but think of her. And it was a challenge to me to think about how we talk, how we control our tongues about the people that are in authority over us. We're coming up on elections. How do we adorn the gospel with the way we talk about those who are in authority over us? This is a real, this is a timely message. So much of this starts with our tongue. Let it start there. Let us just, if you need to, just literally eh, hold your tongue if you need to. Because most of the time, it's just not talking. If, if you're wondering what it looks like, just don't talk. That's a good, good step in the right direction. 
Um, but the second thing is our hands. It's, it's seeing how our resources in our hands, how we can live our life in a way that brings shalom to our workplace, that, that adorns the gospel. And I want you to think as you leave this place, how can I adorn the gospel through my tongue and my hands? How can I adorn the gospel by submitting in a godly way to the leaders God has placed in my life? And with that said, I I just love to pray for us because I know that this is not easy. We live in a culture where this is counter-cultural. So let's just come to the Lord. Let's pray that He would help apply this this week. Lord, we do come to You right now and we plead for Your help. Our natural inclination is toward arguing, pilfering. We know this to be true about us. But Lord, we have been given the truth of your word, the gospel. We have been changed from the inside out. We are to be in this world, but not of this world. And so I pray that as we leave this place, that we are able to go into our world as gospel lights, adorning the gospel, making what we believe all the more beautiful, making the bride of Christ beautiful, making the gospel beautiful. Would you help us practically to live that out? I pray that as each one of us leave, that you would bring that question up in our minds and that throughout our week, you would cause us to ask, how can I adorn the gospel with my tongue to the leaders that you've placed me under? How can I adorn the gospel through my hands for the leaders you've placed me under? So Lord, we we pray that you would help us. We need your help because this is, we are sinners in need of grace and we need you to shine through us. And we give you glory for that in Jesus' name, amen.